Peace to you. Thank you for joining me for the Naked Truth. And welcome back, if you've read with me before. It's Saturday night, so we're going to pick up where we left off in the Gospels. The fourth Gospel now that we've begun. The book of John, uh, chapter 2. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So, um... We're obviously talking about Jesus. The area is Galilee and um, a wedding is happening and Jesus' mama was there. Verse 2. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So not only Jesus' mama, but Jesus and his disciples were also welcomed and invited to the wedding. Verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So um, they run out of refreshments, wine. So they're letting Jesus know. Jesus' mama is letting him know that they've run out of wine. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So it does seem strange that uh, Jesus' mama would be going to him because the wedding party ran out of wine. It's not like he was catering it, at least as far as we, it reads. Um, but apparently she went to him knowing he could help. Um, even if that wasn't something he specialized in, she knew he could help. So she went to him for help. Jesus' response to her does seem kind of curt. He's like, well, what does that have to do with me that you don't have any booze for the party? And he's saying his hour has not yet come. I guess what he's saying by that is that his revelation to the world as Messiah uh, wasn't yet. It wasn't supposed to happen yet. Um, apparently his mama had different ideas. Verse five, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So, um, that says that Jesus' mama is apparently very close to whoever it is throwing the party for her to be able to give the servants orders and letting them know to follow whatever it is her son tells them to do. And they're willing to do it. So clearly she has, uh, some clout with the people throwing the wedding. Um, verse six, now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So, um, when it says Jews, that lets us know there's no such things as the thing as the two kingdoms anymore, like we've been reading on the other, uh, naked truth readings of the other days of the week. This lets us know no matter what tribe the people were from, no matter which kingdom the people were from, collectively, the people are all just known as Jews at this point, um, regardless of which tribe they were in. So that lets us know that prophecy of the stick in the Old Testament being broken into, dividing the kingdoms, the tribes in the two kingdoms, and then at some point reuniting them into one. It's occurred because, again, they're all being referred to as Jews, period, not um, by their tribe not by their kingdom, not by the kingdom of Judah or the kingdom of Israel. They're all just known as Jews, um, just like in modern times. Um, and it says, according to the manner of purification, that goes back to the different religious ordinances that were laid out for um, purifying different things of having to wash this or wash that um, to make it ritually clean. So it's saying that um, that's what was set there. Uh, those giant containers, basically barrels of um, water 
that hold 20 or 30 gallons each. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So um, the apparently they were empty. The barrels were empty, water pots as they're called. And Jesus is giving the command, helping his mom out, since she's asked, and told him uh, to fill the water pots with water. So there's no mistaking that the mortar pots or barrels, if you want to think of them that way, the containers were empty because they had to fill them up. And they're not filling them up with wine. They're filling them up with water. They couldn't have been filling them up with wine because they ran out of wine. So it's clear that it, that's what's going into those empty vessels. And they're being filled up to the brim. So all the way up to the top. Verse 8. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. So the people were, the servants were commanded to fill the water pots with water, which they did. So they know that's what they filled the water pots with. But at the command of Jesus, they're, uh, that was at the command of Jesus. And now also at the command of Jesus, they've been told to take some now to the master of the feast. So to the MC, the master of ceremonies, the person throwing the wedding party to take some of what they just filled the water pots with to the master of the feast. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted it, I'm sorry, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So it's not explicit here, but it's clearly implied that a miracle has happened, something supernatural. They filled the water pots with water, and what they've drawn out has now become wine. This is like Jesus' first official miracle in the book of uh, John, turning the water into wine, which tells us a couple of other things that are implicit, not explicit. Clearly, drinking booze, wine, liquor, alcohol is not a sin. If it were, Jesus wouldn't have made that a miracle of his, much less his first miracle. So once more, Bible thumpers get it wrong when they say you're not supposed to drink alcohol, you're not supposed to drink liquor, you're not supposed to drink wine, you're not supposed to drink. Clearly, God has no problem with that, or Jesus wouldn't have done, done that. Obviously, the um, the slippery slope is drinking too much of it, or letting it take control of you, or being a victim, or I'm sorry, a, um, I guess victim, having it as a disease, alcohol, alcoholism as a disease. That's a whole different thing. But just drinking alcohol partaking in whiskey, wine, liquor, whatever. It's not a sin. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have done that as his very first miracle here in the book of John. Um, verse 10, and he said to him, so this is the master of ceremonies, the master of the feast speaking. And he said to him, every man, well, wait now, who, um, okay, so the master of the feast, is, the master of ceremonies is speaking to the bridegroom now. Verse 10, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. So the MC, the master, the master of the feast is saying it's common practice for people to set out the good stuff first. Then when people are already lit, then you put the cheap stuff out because they aren't going to care at that point. They're already drunk. They aren't going to really care that they're drinking rock gut stuff later because they've already drunk the good stuff but he's saying um but what they've done now is instead 
save the best for last. Like Vanessa Williams saying, instead of putting out the good stuff first, they're putting out the best stuff, the stuff Jesus has now produced through his miracle last. And so it's noteworthy to the MC. Verse 11, um, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So um, this is again, the narrator, presumably John letting us know this was Jesus like first official miracle, um, public miracle um, for everyone to notice the turning water into wine at the wedding feast. So everyone there noticed it. As everyone there, I'm sure, noticed when they ran out of wine. Um, and it was enough to move people to believe in him, at least the disciples. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So um, now that miracle has happened and Jesus is on the move. But he's not on the move alone. His mama is with him. But not only his mama, his brothers also. So that lets us know, even though some preachers will tell you, Joseph of Arimathea is Jesus' uncle, Mary's, Mary's uncle, and Jesus' uncle. And that's how come he was the next akin to claim the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. That's all made up in their minds because here we see Jesus had next of kin. He had brothers. He had also sisters, according to other parts of the gospel. But he also had a mama. So all of the, any one of them are closer to Ken of Ken to Jesus than an uncle would be. So any one of them could have claimed the body of Jesus at the crucifixion. Um, uh, but they didn't. Joseph of Arimathea did. So uh, again, be careful when be preachers from people from the pulpit tell you things and bark them at you as the truth. Um, they may or may not be true at all. And in this case, we see what the truth is. Jesus had other near of kin, next of kin, kinsmen redeemers, in other words, that could have redeemed his body. Um, so it had nothing to do with Joseph of Arimathea being Jesus' uncle. Um, whether that's the truth or not, it's nowhere in the Bible. But here, what is in the Bible is that he did have other brothers and a mama. And like I said before, in the Bible also, he had sisters. Verse um, 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So once again, no matter what tribe the people are from previously, they're all being called and known as Jews commonly um, because the Passover is recognized by all the tribes, not just the people in Judea, not just the uh, tribe of Judah, but all of the tribes recognized the Passover because that was a holiday celebrated when they were emancipated from enslavement in Africa. Um, we read about that in the book of Exodus when we went through that reading. So again, all known as Jews, not just people living in a certain area, although those people also are known as Judeans or also could be called Jews. Clearly here, we're talking about a holiday, Passover, that all the tribes recognize. And all the tribes, again, are being called Jews at this point in the Bible, letting us know that prophecy has been fulfilled. Verse 14, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. So in the book of John here, uh, the cleansing of the temple was happening early. We read about this at later points in the other gospels where Jesus goes into the temple and turns it out, flipping over tables like a housewife. 
he turns it out here early on. This is only chapter two. And it's uh, the one thing that set Jesus off. Not drag queens, not homosexuals, not same-sex marriages, not any of that stuff is the thing that set Jesus off. What set Jesus off is people turning religion into a business, um, whether that's bake sales on the Sunday in the church or uh, fundraising so that you can have a fleet of planes uh, for your church or the preacher being worth a billion dollars in the church. Those are the things that set Jesus off, not any of the stuff, the culture war nonsense that people who claim to be uh, evangelicals and claim to be God-fearing Christians, especially in America in modern times, cling to and use to browbeat people with. Those aren't the things that upset Jesus. Uh, the things that upset Jesus are, again, the fact that people are doing business in the church. And I say church, meaning the holy place, even though it's not actually called a church at this point. These are temples and synagogues. Um, the church actually doesn't uh, enter the story until Christianity, the word church, that is. Um, so anyway, verse 14, and he found, that's what he found in the temple, people doing business, selling the animals used for the business of religion. And we read about that on our other daily readings uh, of the Naked Truth, where uh, after the Ten Commandments were given, just those ten, suddenly the business of religion started, where all sorts of regulations were laid out for people to have to follow. And if they didn't follow, they'd get fined for them and have to pay for them. And they didn't have to pay by prayer or pay by repentance. They had to pay with money, honey. They had to come up with either the cash, the cows, the sheep, the chickens, the wine, the oil, the bread, whatever it is that the religion demanded from them. Otherwise, they were considered still unclean and unfit to attend the religious ceremonies. And they were bound by that. And that dogma is what Jesus is going off on at this point. Because look at it's continued now from the time of Exodus where we read about it all the way up to now. Thousands of years later to now uh, of the time of Jesus. And again, that's the one thing that set Jesus off. Not any other culture or nonsense. So what does Jesus do? Verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. So um, Jesus is set off by seeing God's house being turned into a business, making our Father's house a marketplace where you can go in and buy this and buy that and buy the other in the name of righteousness, in the name of religion. Uh, it's not cool. It's what set Jesus off. So much so that he used the whip of cords that he made, not to drive out just the animals, but to drive out the people, the people doing the business, to drive them out of the place where you're supposed to be going to get closer to God, but instead having to make sure you have your pockets lined to be able to break off the religion before you can get close to God. It's wickedness, and that's what Jesus is upset by, and even turning over tables and uh, flipping out the money changers and um turning it out basically at the sight of it because in God's eyes according to Jesus it's clearly disgusting verse 16 and he said to those who sold doves take these things away do not make my father's house a house of merchandise so um Jesus is directly addressing them letting them know what they're doing is wrong and what they're doing is wickedness they're turning God's house 
the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of God, of trying to find heaven into a business. And that that's completely wrong. It's, it's wickedness. And uh, he's demanding that they take that mess away. Uh, um, the animal sacrifices, uh, the need to make sure you have money to buy the animal sacrifices that are just going to be turned around and given to the religion. And we read what they do with them. Uh, it's for the priests to be enriched by. They had flocks and herds of the different animals that people would uh, be forced to uh, pay them. And sometimes they do what we call a barbecue in plain English um, and share it with the community. But for the most part, they kept it to themselves and enriched themselves by the cows, by the sheep, by the wine, by the oil, by it all. It was a business and it was wickedness. And Jesus is saying it's not cool any more than in modern times. People having bake sales at church is cool or raffles at church. It, that's not what people are supposed to be going uh, to church for, not the monetary reasons. That's not what it's supposed to be about. But we see clearly that's exactly what it's about. These prosperity preachers, these evangelicals, it's not about finding God. It's not about guiding people to Jesus. It's about getting in your pockets and enriching the preacher. That's wickedness. Verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So now the narrator here, again, presumably John, the disciple, is saying that the disciples took this point, took this uh, event to be a reflection on an Old Testament scripture of, um, let's see, in the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 69, verse 9. Um, they are, they're believing that this is the fulfillment of that scripture, that um, zeal, the uh, burning desire to please God is what's on Jesus' mind and heart, and that that's what's um, burning in him to make him do these things, like turn it out and drive out the animals, drive out the business of religion, drive it all out from the temple where people are supposed to be going to get closer to God. They believe that that's a fulfillment of that scripture. Verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? So of course, they're ticked off at their business being interrupted because again, they've been enriched by this for thousands of years at this point. We're up, it's, it's, it's um, in our other daily readings, uh, it's been at least a thousand years since the time of the Exodus when the people left Africa, uh, out of Africa like the movie. Um, it's been a long time since then, but the religion has been alive since then. And the preachers, the priests, the, uh, uh, the religious order are living large, uh, very much enriched off of the different sacrifices and offerings and fines, basically, that the people are being levied, that are being levied on the people whenever they sin. They have to show up with those offerings when they show up to the temple. And we've read already that they haven't been faithful to one entity as God at all uh, very quickly after they were emancipated from enslavement in Egypt. And they quickly turned aside to other deities, entities, lowercase g, gods, gods as their um, focal point of worship. 
And we ran off the laundry list of names of just some of the ones that they're worshiping uh, in our early daily readings. So not being faithful to one entity as God at all. And it all has led to this point where Jesus is saying enough and just uh, shutting it all down. So the people who the religious leaders are asking him, um, who's giving you the right to do that? Uh, what makes you think you can come in here and just turn it out? Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus is telling them, is actually giving them a prophecy of what they're going to end up doing, destroying the temple of his body. And that doesn't mean that everyone's body is the temple of the Lord as another religion will try to morph this into meaning. That's not what he, he's saying at all. And also not what they're going to even say at the crucifixion. They're even going to twist this around and say that he was talking about destroying the physical temple and um, raising it up in three days, even though they know good and well, that's not what he's referring to either. Even by their own admission after the crucifixion, when they want to make sure his body is buried and guarded, the tomb is guarded, they were, they um, make it clear to the governor at that point that they knew he wasn't talking about destroying the actual building temple. He was talking about his body. That's why they demanded or requested that guards be set up so that his body is not stolen away by the disciples in the middle of the night. So they knew then that he's that when what he's saying here in verse 19 isn't in reference to the physical building temple at all, but instead talking about his own physical body and the fact that they would uh, crucify him, destroy his body, but that that wouldn't be the end. There would be a resurrection of his of his body uh, after the uh, in the three days. Verse 20, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? So now at this point, they are referring to the physical building of the temple, not the one that Solomon built because that one was destroyed, but another temple that had been rebuilt that is also going to end up being destroyed. Jesus is even going to give the prophecy that that temple will be destroyed. And it was in around 70 AD. It was destroyed by the Romans when they uh, starved the people out and made another prophecy come true when Jesus said, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing babies in those days, because it was woe to them because they were starved out. The city was surrounded and they couldn't get in or out to go get any more food or provisions. So the people were driven to the point where they were eating their children, eating their placenta, eating their babies out of desperation, turning to cannibalism to survive. That's the woe Jesus was referring to, not woe to people who are indoctrinated with the Antichrist theory. All of that is nonsense. That's not what Jesus was referring to at all. And again, like I said before, Jesus never once even said the word Antichrist in all of the four books of the Gospels. Instead, he referred to the coming of many false Christs, plural. And yet, you see Bible thumpers misleading people with the false notion that Jesus talked about a singular Antichrist coming and performing all these other different things which Jesus did not do or say. But as always, believe what you want, but it's written right here for us to believe it. So at this point in verse 20, they are talking about the physical building of the temple. And they're saying, oh, so you're gonna, you think you can tear down the temple 
the physical building of the temple and rebuilding in three days when it took nearly five decades to build it. Verse 21, that he was speaking of the temple of his body. So now in verse 21, the narrator is letting us know that what Jesus was referring to retrospectively wasn't the physical temple uh, that people were going to to try to get closer to God, but having to make sure they had money in their pockets, not that temple at all, but instead referring to the temple of his body that he was giving for humanity's sake in the crucifixion and resurrection. Verse 22, therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So now again, retrospectively, the narrator, again, presumably John, is saying that after the crucifixion, the disciples realized and put two and two together that when Jesus turned it out, he wasn't talking about the building of the temple. He was talking about his own physical body that was going to be given up and destroyed, torn down with the crucifixion, but also resurrected, raised up again. Not talking about the building being torn down and rebuilt in three days, but his body being torn down, given up to, to death, and then raised again. And while we're on the subject of death, people will, thumpers will try to tell you that death is Satan. And that um, another part of the Bible that says Jesus went through all this to destroy death, to destroy, that is the devil. That couldn't have been what Jesus was doing because the devil still existed. Death still happens, and they, and even a part of the other religion that arises after the Gospels will say, death, where is your sting, and all of that. Death still has its sting because almost everyone, uh, the not everyone entirely, but almost everyone still experiences death. So death, where is your sting? There it is. People still die. The grave, where is your glory, or whatever it is, it still has it because people still end up in the grave. For the most part, almost entirely everyone still dies. But not everyone, but almost everyone. So it's a nonsensical statement to say death wears your sting. It's still there. People still die and people still grieve them when they die. So yeah, death still has its sting. Jesus' mission wasn't to destroy death. And if it was, then that mission hasn't been accomplished yet because people still die. So it's just nonsense. And it's religion that gets people confused with statements like that and they are in the bible so they are scripture but they're not what jesus said so they're not christianity but as always believe what you want but it just doesn't make sense and it doesn't even align with what jesus is saying or doing um let's see verse 23 now when he was in jerusalem at the passover during the feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did so um now Passover, that same holiday, uh, has is happening in full swing, and apparently Jesus is performing more miracles because, according to the narrator, people are believing in him and in his name because they're seeing the signs that he did. So it's beyond just the water into wine. The narrator here is letting us know Jesus did other things that aren't written here that were enough to get people to believe. But as always, you have to believe what you want to believe. But if you're going to call yourself Christian, Shouldn't we be believing what Jesus says? But people get uh, convinced by lies. Like people will believe that instead of, even though we read in Genesis where Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. It says it right there in Genesis, I think chapter four. Uh, it says it right there at the beginning. 
And yet people will believe that because preachers tell them that it was the devil who was the father of Cain and that somehow the devil had sex with Eve, even though it doesn't say any of that, doesn't say he had sex with her, doesn't say he lay, lay with her, doesn't say that at all. It says Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived and she had Cain. Yet preachers will twist all of that around and say that, no, 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 it's the devil who had sex with her. Even though they'll tell you also the devil was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they'll also say the devil was the serpent. And yet they'll also say the devil had sex with her. And yet they'll also preach that because angels had sex with women, giants were born. And yet if the devil had sex with Eve and she had Cain from him, why wasn't Cain a giant then? So it just lets you know they're lying to you. They may have good intentions, but regardless of their good intentions, they're lying to you. And that, that makes me, that calls to mind the, the proverb, the adage, the old saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So people will have good intentions, but still be lying to you. So regardless of their good intentions, they're offending with that lie. And that lie is against the big 10. You're not supposed to lie to people. So in lying to people, you're paving the road, your road, your path to hell, even though you may have good intentions with the lie to get people enthralled in your teaching, to get people to follow you and believe in what you're saying, it's still a lie and it's still paving your way, paving a path to the flames because it's just not true. It's not backed up by the scripture. It's not backed up by the facts of what's in the scripture. Because again, if she had sex with a, an angel, her child would have been a giant according to what's written there in Genesis. And then they'll just distract you and move the goalposts and say, Oh, well, one of his kids were giants. That's not him. And that, that doesn't explain him having, uh, being born from Adam and Eve. So again, as always, believe what you want, but at least you have to be consistent if you're going to um, say you're a Christian and following what's the scripture, what the scripture says. So anyway, verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. So Jesus knows the heart is what the narrator is letting us know here. So the fact that people would follow him wasn't enough to make him say, oh, they're true believers because they're following me. Some people followed him just because of the spectacle, just like people will stand around and watch a spectacle now and not do anything about it. Like when George Floyd was murdered, people stood around and watched the murder and videotaped it, even though um, it, I guess because it was a person in uniform doing it. That's almost certainly why they didn't intervene. But that's not the only reason. We see other crimes happen, like the woman who was raped on the subway. People stood around and watched it and recorded it, but didn't do anything to intervene in it. So Jesus knows the heart and that just because people see a spectacle, they may follow the spectacle around. That doesn't mean they're faithful followers or Christians at all, any more than in modern times. People will say they're Christians, but ignore what the scriptures, what the red letters actually say altogether. But they'll follow the spectacle of what someone from the pulpit tells them because it tickles their ear. And But Jesus is able, is able to see right through all of that, according to the narrator here. Because again, this isn't red letter. It's the narrator telling us that Jesus had that power to know what's in the heart and um, know whether people are actually faithful believers or just following the spectacle. Verse 25, and had, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. 
So again, the narrator is letting us know Jesus knows what's on them in the heart, what people are thinking in their minds, what people are feeling in their hearts, what people are desiring in their souls, and what darkness lies within the people with the spirit. Jesus knows all of that. And so Jesus isn't swayed like people would be by fandom and just be persuaded to follow someone because they are fond of how they look or the things they say or what it is they've done. Jesus isn't swayed like that, according to the narrator. And in this case, I believe the narrator. I don't I think Jesus can see exactly what people are all about. And um so isn't um necessarily moved by the fact that multitudes are following him because he knows what's in their hearts isn't necessarily righteousness. And we know that objectively because even the people who put him to death with the crucifixion that is followed him around they witnessed the miracles but that still wasn't enough to make them actually believe in him even though they still followed him around and scribed or documented wrote down the different things he was doing not because they were fans but because they could find so that they could find fault with it and how it disagrees with the dogma that they were preaching as um religious law for the people to have to abide by as the religion Jesus was born into, not the religion, not the belief system, I should say, that Jesus preached in his ministry. That was the last verse in this chapter, though, so we'll end the reading here. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth, and as always, I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you. See you next time. God bless you, and peace be, peace be with you.